You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. The pandemic forced a new way of public access because of physical restrictions. And as state lawmakers opened the legislative session, technology has helped in many ways, particularly uh, for those from the neighbor islands who in the past had had the added expense of flying to Oahu to participate in person. But with talk about beefing up security and the Capitol building still closed to the public, we talked to Sandy Ma of Common Cause, whose mission is all about open government and equal access. Our Capitol normally is open to the public, and now our state Capitol building is closed due to COVID and now the security risks that are being talked about. And, you know, one of the great things was, you know, how open our state Capitol building normally is and how people could wander around. And, you know, when we go to the state capitol, we meet our legislators and we're able to talk to them about um, the issues of the public, the issues that we may have. And they're usually quite receptive. We could go to our uh, legislators' offices and talk to their staff and just, you know, raise our concerns and, and share our issues and just talk story like we do in Hawaii. And, you know, we see people, we, we see our friends, we, we see other advocates and just, you know, you know, like I say, share our concerns and just, you know, form, um, you know, alliances and just, you know, really be able to form, you know, coalitions and, you know, be able to partner up on certain issues. And we can't do that anymore. We're kind of cut off from our capital. And a lot of it is for safety reasons, which is totally understandable. Um, But some people are still allowed access into the building. Um, Of course, our legislators work there and their staff work there. So, um, and certain guests are invited into the building. But it just sounds like you know, the whole idea of the state capitol, it was designed with open government in mind. It really is a kind of living, breathing machine when it's in session because if you're hanging out on, on the railing, you get to see who's talking to whom, who's going into, uh, you know, the speaker's office uh, or the Senate president's office. So it's it's just so vibrant. And without that access anymore, it's just not the same. Yeah. You're right. The design of the building was to promote openness, just being able to walk around, to, to, to see everyone, to, to share the stories. It changes the dynamic. It changes how we interact with each other. It changes how we interact with our elected officials. It, cha- it ch- changes a lot of things. I hope we're able to go back and be that type of free-flowing state capital environment that we had prior to COVID and prior to the scare, um, the attack on our nation's capital that we had. Um, I hope it doesn't permanently change the way we see each other and permanently alter our, our social compact. That's just not how we have been operating in Hawaii, and that's not how it seems like Hawaii has always treated each other. And we understand that there are lawmakers that will be proposing bills that will deal with security at our Capitol building, you know, whether it's metal detectors or other physical barriers. What are your concerns about that? We want people to feel welcome. We want everyone to feel welcome at the state Capitol because it's the people's house. It's where we enact and discuss legislation to affect everyone, and everyone should feel welcome, and everyone should feel accepted. And so we want the people's house to be welcoming of everyone. We hope that is not changed and that everyone is still welcome into the people's house because Common Cause's mission is to make sure that everyone has access to our elected officials. Everyone has equal access to our elected officials. It's interesting because, you know, I guess lobbyists, uh, and you're you're a lobbyist, you know, but in order to to get into the capital, physical access to the capital. I understand you have to, you know, make a request of a lawmaker and then you have to get vetted. I think, you you know, you've got to get your temperature checked and that kind of thing as they try and uh, uh, channel people, you know, I think uh, downstairs uh, in the chambers, you know, to allow people to actually enter the building. That is true. I, I do ask to talk with our elected officials to promote transparency ethics, uh, good government issues. I certainly am happy to take a Zoom meeting with an elected official 
if, if uh, I do meet uh, with an elected official in person, I do go through a process of being on a guest list and then going through one entrance at the state capitol. But I'm, I'm happy to meet by Zoom. So Common Cause is hosting a webinar this weekend to talk about access issues. We are talking about giving an update on our gut and replace litigation. And we are talking about our 2021 legislative priorities for the session that just opened. And we are giving an overview on how to participate in the Hawaii State Legislative Session because it's going to be so different from anything we've seen before. And we want to make sure that everyone who wants to participate is able to participate. And so we want to make sure that people know how to do it. What are the most important things that the public needs to know if they want to testify on a bill? Please, you have to have a account at the uh, state legislative uh, website, capital.hawaii.gov. Please open an account, submit your testimony on time, no later than 24 hours before a committee hearing. You could testify online, orally, via Zoom. You don't have to. You could just submit a written testimony and you don't have to testify uh, via Zoom if you don't want to. And you could also, of course, uh, come to our training our, this weekend on Saturday, January 23rd at 3 p.m. The information is on our website, Common Cause Hawaii. Okay, and then you'll, you'll walk uh, everybody through the process. Yes, we will. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sandy Ma. We appreciate uh, all you do. No, thank you. Thank you, Catherine, for having me on. That was Sandy Ma, head of Common Cause Hawaii, talking about the pluses and minuses of testifying remotely at the state legislature as physical access to the building has been severely restricted. For links to their weekend webinar, you can also check our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders to navigate in times of change. More information at Inkinen.com. Join us on Saturday, January 30th for a virtual concert with Ron Artis II from his home in Oregon. From a large musical family, Artis has a sound all his own, blending Delta blues, gospel, northern soul, and R&B. The Oahu native now lives in Portland, but always looks for chances to connect with his fans in his island home. Reserve your spot at hbrtickets.org. Sponsored by Bonnie Rice and the Rice Partnership Wealth Management. In public radio, there's a phenomenon called the driveway moment. It's when you're driving somewhere and you reach your destination, but you linger in the car just so you can catch the end of a great story. Well, with the HPR mobile app, you can pick up that story anytime you want, replay national shows as well as local news stories, and make driveway moments a thing of the past. Get the HPR app in the App Store or on Google Play. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your Backyard Quiz. For today's Backyard Quiz, we go to Maui. Over the course of the 20th century, plantation agriculture had a profound impact on the Valley Isle. In particular, Maui was home to sugar and pineapples. The last sugar mill in Hawaii, operated by Hawaiian Commercial and Sugar in Pu'unene, closed its doors in 2016 after 134 years of operation. At its peak, Maui Pineapple Company was the largest grower of Hawaiian pineapples in the United States. But these weren't the only crops that fortune seekers brought to Maui in homes to make a buck. 
In the early 1900s, a small group of entrepreneurs tried to cultivate another important agricultural product of that era in the rainy Apua'a of Nahiku in East Maui. For today's two-part quiz, we want to know what that agricultural product was and what industry they were growing it for. Need a place to start? Try to think of an important invention from the turn of the 20th century. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you think you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to supporting affordable housing statewide, along with civic and community initiatives for residents. Learn more at NareetHawaii.com. Leaders of Hawaii's Island Barrel Councils are urging state lawmakers to investigate what they say is systemic and chronic mismanagement by the Office of the State Historic Preservation Division. HPR reporter Kuvehi Hirishi joins us this morning. Good morning, Catherine. Earlier this week, some of us may have seen the heads of the state's Island Burial Councils organized an island-wide protest to, to really raise awareness of the oversight, I guess, uh, division uh, in which the burial councils are managed, the State Historic uh, Preservation Division. So this is a division of the State Department of Land and Natural Resources, and it's in the overseeing uh, state bodies for these island burial councils for about 30 years. For those who might not be familiar with the burial councils, they are representatives from each community on uh, all the islands, uh, representatives of developers as well as uh, Native Hawaiians, who are uh, responsible really in advising the state when it comes to uh, finding ancestral remains or ivikupuna, uh, Native Hawaiian burials, and uh, other sorts of uh, historic preservation uh, type items. State audits of the Shipti reveal chronic leadership dysfunction, employee discord, and a significant backlog of project reviews resulting in the effective undermining of the historic preservation review process, including the protection of unmarked burial sites throughout the islands. The systemic and chronic mismanagement of the burial councils by the State Historic Preservation Division for the past 25 years continue to effectively undermine the ability of the councils to exercise their legally established authorities, rights, and responsibilities, resulting in the inability to provide legal protection and cultural care to unmarked Hawaiian burial sites. That was uh, Hina Lemoana Wong Kalu. She's the chairwoman of the O'ahu Island Burial Councils and uh, read from this joint statement by chairpersons of uh, other island burial councils earlier this week, sort of outlining some of the issues that have, in their opinion, plagued Shifty's ability uh, to allow the councils themselves to really uh, have a role in in protecting Native Hawaiian burials. Now, Shipti has had challenges with staff. You know, they've had openings trying to get those uh, positions right. filled with people who know something about the islands. Exactly. Staff shortages have been one. Also, staff training. Uh, the burial councils themselves, uh, right now, there are about uh, 15 vacancies and a total of uh, about 40 positions, which may not seem like a, an alarming, I guess, you know, notion. But when we talk about some of the, the work that needs to be done when a developer perhaps runs into ancestral remains and they need that oversight and the, the care of, of a shipping staffer and may not have it immediately, it's, you know, sometimes uh, hard for either side of the coin, either the developer or those that uh, want to make sure that these burials 
are, are done properly and cared for properly, that they can have that oversight uh, component to it. We spoke to Alan Downer, uh, the administrator for uh, the State Historic Preservation Division, who says he is committed to, you know, the administration of the, of the burial program. He is aware of the council's concerns, and he has said that staffing has been uh, an issue, but that he is working with the state attorney general's office specifically to arrange for uh, any burial council training, but did not give any specifics. But up until, you know, 30 years ago, just for context, the state uh, really offered uh, no legal protections for Native Hawaiian burials. Halealoha uh, Ayao, who is familiar and has been trained with uh, the traditional I guess uh, the traditions of uh, burial protection, Native Hawaiian tradition, uh, says it took the unearthing, and some of us may remember this, but the unearthing of some 1,100 uh, ivikupuna or ancestral remains by a Maui hotel developer in, in Honokahua in 1990. It took that uh, event to really uh, thrust state lawmakers into action. Uh, here's Ayao. Instead of protesting, the governor at the time, Governor John Waihe'e, urged the Hawaiian people to become part of the solution. Get a law passed, he said. Create a program to properly manage Hawaiian burial sites. We take no pleasure in having to criticize uh, the State Historic Preservation Division. But what choice do we have? This is the third or fourth iteration of having to ask SHPD to improve its management of the burial sites program. It doesn't matter who the governor was and who the administration was at the time. The mismanagement has continued. Um, so if, if the answer for the, for the Hawaiian people was to become part of the solution, uh, we need the state of Hawaii to, be, to uphold their part of that solution. So right now the group uh, is urging state lawmakers to create a burial sites working group that would then investigate some of the findings from the state audit, some of these claims uh, by this uh, group of burial council leaders, and come up with recommendations for the 2022nd uh, state legislature to try to improve burial protection. Now, the last time I covered a burial uh, council meeting, it was here on Oahu, a very mm. emotional. It was over the Kauaihau remains over at the cemetery there. I know this is uh, an issue that both Wong Kalu and Ayao have also been working on. I'm sure they uh, were there uh, to voice their opinion on what going on specifically with Kauai Ha'o. Now, in, in these instances, I, I also recently did one on the Kaua'ula Valley development and protests that were going on there. Native Hawaiians who have ancestral ties or lineal ties to that land and may have kupuna buried or that may be disturbed by whatever development is going on. And these are the folks that are really uh, wanting to see a stronger protection in the law, or perhaps not, the law is there. It's the, it's the carrying out and enforcing of those laws that I think uh, is really at the heart of, of what this group is trying to uh, raise awareness about. And listeners may not be aware, but if a construction worker, a construction crew unearths Evie, they have to stop mm-hmm. and call State Historic Preservation Division. Uh, they have to send someone out there. But in some large construction projects, like we saw with rail, you know, they have cultural advisors that are hired, and they are on call because that construction is ongoing. Right. There have been vast improvements in the last 30 years in terms of the, the private sector really taking the, the lead and trying to do what is kono in that development. And I think even in those instances, having someone from SHIPSI or any guidance as to whether, you know, we're doing it right is kind of um, that, that missing gap right now. And so... We'll see what, uh, whether this working group actually is established and what they find. And I think um, from there, uh, we'll have a better idea of, of what can be done to improve everything. Right, because we are getting into uh, a kind of a tricky area for rail. And I know, you know, they did have to do the archaeological uh, survey, you know, prior to uh, starting the project. Actually, they started it without it and then were forced to stop and reassess. But, you know, that area uh, in town you know, has been, yes. is full of Ibi Kupuna, or has been in the past. Yeah, it's Kaka'ako, and, and, and the concern, you know, that it, it is known that there are uh, Ibi, pretty much anywhere there would have been Hawaiians, especially if there were 
uh, big battles and whatnot, right? And so understanding that as well, like a, a, a more a thorough understanding of what and what history is tied to each place is another sort of component that I believe uh, Shifty was tasked with uh, sort of uh, doing that it hadn't yet completed. And so some of this work, backlog work, is something that could help improve barrier protection statewide. All right. Well, thank you, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We have been talking with HPR's Kuvehi Rishi. To find her stories, head to hawaiipublicradio.org. Now time for our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. It has an online story about how Samoa is now allowing residents to return home. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about this. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. How are you? Good. Happy Thursday. (laughs) Yes, and a happy story, actually, uh, about... um well, American Samoa specifically, this is from our reporter, Anita Hofschneider, and I'm filling in for her today. And this involves uh, hundreds, hundreds of American Samoans that have been stranded in, in the United States because American Samoa, since COVID uh, came last year, has had a very strict uh, border control. Now, it's been good for American Samoa in the sense there's a, there's only been four cases, uh, two of those on container ships, but it has had a high emotional and financial cost for, gosh, I think it's something like over a thousand or more American Samoans that have been stranded in the U.S. By the way, most of those people are here in Hawaii. So Anita's story today focuses on a repatriation effort to get them to go home finally given some relief to these folks that have uh, have not been able to go back to uh, uh, Pago Pago. Yes, and, and I recall early on, I think even Vash, uh, the Visitor Aloha uh, Society mm. of Hawaii, had stepped up to help some families, uh, but who knew it was going to stretch out this long? Yeah, Anita opens her story, and there's a wonderful photo uh, of a couple, uh, American Simone couple in Utah. They flew uh, to Utah before the pandemic came, what is it now, 10 months ago. Uh, and they left two of their children behind uh, with grandparents, and they brought one of their kids with them, a three-year-old, and they had a newborn while they were in Utah, so the parents of four kids. Um, but they couldn't go back, and uh, it's 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 not only just emotionally and financially difficult, but um, the, the fathers had to pick up some work uh, in Utah to send money back home. Um, they left behind work at home, including working on a farm and helping with uh, their parents' store. Uh, and this is, you know, a tough situation. Good news under this new program, they're going to be able to return. Let me just briefly explain how that works. This is something that the American Samoan government, it's a territory of the U.S., by the way, uh, is working with uh, the city and county of Hawaii, uh, Honolulu, the uh, the quarantine uh, uh, organizations that are here. And the way it works is you got to have a doctor's note. You have to have a 10-day quarantine. That's being held at the Waikiki Sands Hotel. And there's also two negative tests that are required before they can go back home. In fact, just this week, uh, there was a testing uh, program for these American Samoans at Waikiki Shell's parking lot. Two more of those testing programs are scheduled in early February to get folks back home. I should also add that the American Samoan government is paying for this. Yes, and, and uh, it is uh, you know heartwarming to know that these folks are going to be reunited with their families once again after being separated for so long. Well, it, there's sad things as well. Anita does report one case in which a couple uh, stranded here in the U.S., um, they lost a child, uh, a terminal illness, uh, last month, and, and very sad that they can't uh, bring the body home in, in time. Of course, burials have been in, uh, erupted as well, very important to island cultures, to all of us, really. Um, I should also say this is not just American Samoa uh, that has had concerns with uh, border restrictions. Uh, what's known as the freely associated states, uh, really 
Micronesia, right? The Federated States of Micronesia, the Republic of the Marshall Islands, and also uh, Palau. Uh, they too have had very strict border controls and same thing. It has also worked to keep uh, COVID largely at bay. I think there's only been uh, two cases in the Marshalls, I think one in FSM, uh, hopefully not many more. So that's working, but the downside is so many folks are, are, are left in the U.S. wanting to come back, and they certainly couldn't have planned. Who could plan for COVID, right? Right. I know we have done stories about how uh, way back when, you know, when we were dealing with the Spanish flu, uh, mm. the story in Samoa, the two Samoas, you know, Western Samoa and American Samoa, one uh, one group shut their borders down, and uh, they had, you know, no deaths, I think, and then the other uh, island uh relaxed restrictions and uh you know they paid the penalty they paid the cost so you right. understand you know the concern that they have these tiny islands right the family that anita by the way profiles the lalongi family uh th- while they were in utah we should say really american samoans stranded all over the country california oregon texas uh, and on the east coast as well and by the way even though most of them are here in hawaii we should explain well why are they here well just like everybody, they're visiting family, they're here for school, maybe they're here for medical issues, good reasons for them to come to the U.S., uh, but they can't go home. So hopefully Anita's next update on this story will be that this more than 1,000 people stranded from American Samoa are on their way back home. Good news. Yes. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chad Blair. Thank you, Catherine. That was politics and opinion editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Uh, to read Anita Hofschneider's story, visit civilbeat.org. The County of Maui is developing a plan to build 5,000 affordable housing units over the next five years, and it wants to hear from the community. Uh, Maui County's Office of Council Services contracted Hawaiian Community Assets, a nonprofit group that helps low- and moderate-income families into homes to hold community meetings to find solutions to affordable housing. Because of the pandemic, the meetings have taken place over Zoom and have aired on Akaku. A few have already taken place but will continue through February. Jeff Gilbreth is the executive director of Hawaiian Community Assets. He spoke with the conversations, Jason Ubai, about the community meetings. Essentially what the contract is requesting of us is to bring forward recommendations from the community that help the county develop a 5,000-unit plan for affordable housing. So identifying how can we improve existing housing policy, whether that's the Workforce Housing Ordinance, Um, or making sure that there's funding that's available for the building of affordable housing. Uh, So improving those policies to make sure that the 5,000 units can be built. Um, And the second being a detailed map of where these developments could happen and feedback on, you know, what some of the issues might be for those projects, what are some um, some key things that we'll need um, in order to get those units built and Hawaiian Community Assets is in a process now of engaging community members across the county, uh, and we'll be doing this through June to be able to inform the recommendations that we take forward to the county council. We'll have a draft set of recommendations that go forward to the council in March, and then final uh, recommendations in June for their approval. So this is the county council's process. We are a contractor under this as a private nonprofit. Uh, but Hawaiian Community Assets is not alone in this work. As a nonprofit, we see the value of making sure that any plan that gets developed and we take time on actually results in implementation. And so on our HCA team is not just our uh, organization staff there in Maui that's helping do the community workshops and engage with individual members uh, of different neighborhoods and communities to inform the plan, Uh, But we also have um, uh, an engineering firm with Austin Tsutsumi and and Associates. We have a planning firm in PBR Hawaii. Uh, We have policy analysts doing research from Hawaii Appleseed Center for Economic uh, Law and Economic Justice. And we have a developer 
and financier of affordable housing, a rural community assistance corporation that works in the 13 states in the western region of the country and have worked out in Hawaii so that we can bring all of uh, the heads of, uh, of these folks together to hear the recommendations from community and put forward these, these recommendations that the council will vote on. Uh, but I think the biggest thing for listeners that we, we want to make sure uh, folks know is that we need community voice, that any plan that goes forward is only going to be as good as community weighing in on uh, what those recommendations are. You know, where, where should developments happen? Where should it be encouraged? Where should it be discouraged? What are the priorities for their family and their community? Is it housing affordability? Is it having more access to open space? Is it all the above? And so we are encouraging folks to go to MauiHousingPlan.org, so MauiHousingPlan.org, um, and register for a community workshop by clicking Participate on that website. And when folks are done with, with participating in that community meeting, uh, if they go to that same website, MauiHousingPlan.org, and click Share Solutions, there is a housing plan survey that community members can complete and provide feedback to our organization so we can take that feedback and put it in the recommendations to the county council. Our goal is to get 1% of the county population, about 1,700 individuals, to complete that survey. And we're seeing that increase over time, but we need more people to weigh in. Affordable housing really takes responsibility of everyone. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, really asking for folks who um, are working hard day in and day out um, to participate in this process. And I know it's a lot to ask when you're working a couple jobs, potentially you're just barely making ends meet, but this plan should be for you, right? If you're the, if you're the grocery store clerk, if you're the nurse, if you're the teacher, the carpenter union guy, the firefighter, the police officer, we need to hear from you folks about um, affordable housing and what your priorities are and what your family can do. And the best way to do that is get plugged in. Go to MauiHousingPlan.org, click Participate, and then click on Share Solutions to give us your uh, your manao, your feedback on what should be in the plan. It looks like you're also uh, looking for geographic diversity around uh, Maui uh, community meeting on Molokai. Why is that important to have a representation from all over Maui Nui? Yeah, it's critical to have representation all across uh, the county, Molokai and Maui and all the planning, because every community is different and every community has priorities that they've put forward in community plans that have been done over the last you know, 20, 30 years and that we really hear the same kind of issues coming up in plans. But this is the opportunity uh, to focus specifically on affordable housing in those community plans. The solutions for central Maui and Wailuku and Kahului is going to look a lot different than Kanakakai and Lanai City. Um, and so we're asking community members from each, you know, from their respective neighborhoods to weigh in uh, because we need your feedback being part of the community that you're a part of. And the more we can identify that the needs are different, you know, like I said, in Kanakakai and Lanai City and Hana from Wailuku and Kahului, the better, because then we can put forward recommendations that not only talk about affordable housing for central Maui. We see a lot of the population, um, but we should be thinking about solutions that are unique, uh, community-driven from um, those communities of Molokai, East, East Maui, and, and Lanai. Uh, you've already had a few community meetings, and you've been hearing, uh, so getting some feedback from the surveys. What are some of the main issues that people are bringing up uh, in regards to affordable housing? Uh, that it's not affordable. And, you know, I think folks hear affordable housing uh, today, and uh, a lot of times they look at what that price of that home is and what their family can make, and um, it's just so far different from what they what they know. And so what this has taken is in these community meetings is really talk about, well, how do we, how do we increase affordability for our workers and working families there? in Maui County. And, you know, there's a couple things that have really risen to the surface, Jason, in our, in our outreach so far. And one is that pretty clear across the board, the folks are saying government needs to take responsibility on infrastructure. 
So there's a lot of work to be done with water, sewer, roads, schools, that in order to build 5,000 affordable units like the county council is is asking this plan to to identify and do, there's going to need to be a commitment of public dollars to community-serving infrastructure so that we don't have to saddle those costs on the home price or the rental price for the family at the end of the day, but that it can be shared uh, amongst the community using our, our, our tax dollars there in the county to be able to bring those costs down. So we have been hearing government needs to take responsibility on infrastructure, but there might be ways to raise some funding uh, there at the county. Um, we're going through some recommendations um, that might be possible, but it's too early to tell. Uh, the second, I would say the second thing we're hearing, Jason, is preserving importance of preserving affordable housing units for our local families and future generations. And so the workforce housing ordinance uh, right now says that any development has to dedicate 25% of its units to, uh, to affordable housing or to workforce housing units for households making 140% area median income and less. Um, but what we're seeing is that uh, even if those affordable units are built, um, there's only a, a short period of time that our uh, low and moderate income families have there on Maui to be able to purchase that home. And if they don't, it can be um, moved out of its affordable price point and made a, a market rate uh, price point, which um, I believe last I saw the single family home sales price there, uh, the median on Maui County was $865,000. And so so this is a concern, right, that you have 25 percent of these units built uh, to be affordable for our local families, um, but that oftentimes they um, we can't get families in. And so those affordable units go to market. And so what we're looking at is the potential of dedicating 25 uh, percent of land uh, to affordable housing, which would mean that we could put this land in trust, either with a private community land trust, uh, a public uh, land trust, even in partnership with the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, potentially, uh, or just by doing ground leases with nonprofit developers over a long period of time, so that we can make sure that once we build these affordable units, they will be for affordable families, or families that, that need this affordability that are low and moderate income, not only today, but as a way to make sure that it's affordable for the next generation uh, through these ground leases. Um, and so those are a couple things that we see uh, coming up in the conversations, you know, I think folks, uh, when it comes to affordable housing and housing affordability, rightly so, they look at what their family can can afford, and, and they don't see those price points um, showing up right now in developments. And so uh, a couple of these things, you know, that we could do could bring that cost down, but there's a whole lot more. Uh, and we're, we want to hear from community, what are those solutions? And we believe those solutions are out in community that could support uh, making sure that we can get affordable homes uh, to families making $67,000 and less. Um, about 75% of the need right now for affordable units is for families making $67,000 and less. And so this plan has to really look at recommendations uh, that go bold uh, and, and take a different path but all toward making sure at the end of the day it's more affordable for our workers and, and working families there in the county. That was Jeff Gilbreth, head of Hawaiian Community Assets. He talked to our producer, Jason Ubai, about the community meetings to develop Maui County's affordable housing plan. You can share your input by going to mauihousingplan.org, or we'll also have links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. These days, the scene at home is busier. Hands full, meal in the oven, a dog begging for your attention. 
With so much going on inside, how can you stay connected to what is going on outside your home? Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You'll get the latest news from your community and beyond. We'll keep you company while you keep things moving. Ask your smart speaker to play KHPR for HPR1 or play KIPO for HPR2. On the next Fresh Air, some facts and some myths about exercise. Is sitting really the new smoking? Does running ruin your knees? We'll talk with Harvard professor Daniel Lieberman, who studied the biomechanics of Americans and of indigenous people living as hunter-gatherers. His new book is called Exercise. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the art and museum spaces on Pauhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. For today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you to name an important but little-known agricultural product that was grown on Maui at the turn of the 20th century. We also wanted to know what industry this product was for. For our answer, we had to start across the shores in Chile, Michigan in 1903 with the founding of the Ford Motor Company. Over the next decade, the Ford Motor Company would perfect assembly line production of affordable cars, which uh, caused the demand for rubber to skyrocket. This brings us back to Nahiku on Maui, where the Nahiku rubber plantation was officially established in 1907. The first Hawaiian rubber company, led by Mr. Hugh Howell of Nahiku, wanted to cultivate rubber to supply the United States' growing automobile industry. The venture looked promising at first, but after just a few years, it was clear that the quality and quantity of Hawaiian rubber was not high enough to make a profit. The Nahiku Rubber Plantation officially ended operations in 1915, but you can still find rubber trees along the roads in Nahiku. And we had lots of callers for this question. Our winner, uh, congratulations to Emily Fielding of Haiku Maui. She knew the answer because she'd heard it from her friends in Nahiku. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Across the country, various programs funded by the CARES Act have been able to provide assistance to renters in need. And in a rare bit of good news, Hawaii has the distinction of having received the most rental assistance per capita in the entire nation. Aloha United Way's Lisa Kimura spoke to the Conversations Harrison Patino this morning about the Rent Relief and Housing Assistance Program. Since the start of this program, it has been an extremely, um, extremely overwhelming need that has been demonstrated. Um, we've seen people coming from every corner of the state, um, people who were in situations that never had uh, contemplated needing the assistance, and we have since helped over 13,000 households. Now, recent findings indicate that this program was the most successful per capita than any other state. Now, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Comparatively speaking, Hawaii as a state has distributed more rent assistance, rent and mortgage assistance per capita than any other state in the nation. Um, a lot of this has to do with the efficacy of the program, the ability to get the money out easily, um, relatively speaking, um, as well as the fact that the, the need has just been overwhelming. I think a lot of that could be due to the fact that we are still sitting at a about 15% unemployment rate, which is you know absolutely one of the highest in the nation. Now you speak about the efficacy of the program there. In other states, we've heard about bureaucratic red tape delaying certain rental assistance programs. Was that not a problem here? You know, I, I think that our government worked extremely hard, as fast as they possibly could, to get the assistance out. There was definitely problems across the nation in terms of clarity around the guidance uh, from the Treasury Department for this money. Um, but our our state legislators were so committed to learning lessons and, and, and making good choices from the start of the program to be able to unencumber the funds. And I think that there was a really demonstrated uh, focus 
on making sure that we were tracking the numbers extremely aggressively to make sure that we could spend down all the funds by the end of the year, which was the original deadline. Now, you mentioned that because of Hawaii's relatively high unemployment rate compared to other states, that might have owed to the relative success of the program. Do you think there's any other particular reasons that the program was so successful here in Hawaii? You know, I really do have to attribute it to the fact that people have been working extremely hard and have been very nimble, first of all, in in addressing challenges as they were coming up and being extremely, uh, just extremely dedicated to ensuring that we not only were following guidelines, not only are making sure that we're getting the, uh, the program adhered to as well as possibly could, but being very thoughtful in the approach, being uh, wide-reaching. Um, we definitely had far more people applying for this program than funds available. With that said, though, with a very kind of quick turnaround, quick deadline by the end of the year, the focus on making sure that we were tracking the funds with the numbers of weeks available in the year is is really what made it possible to get it all out. Now, what were the demographics of the people seeking relief here? Was this primarily coming from lower-income households, or was the outlook not as simple as that? It, You know, the interesting thing is we saw households from every socioeconomic background applying. And we, you know, there are families, there are households that were in perfectly fine economic shape prior to COVID. Once COVID hit, they had lost one or more jobs in their household, which suddenly put them into an economic circumstance they had not been in before. Um, And so people who historically had not struggled suddenly were finding themselves with the need for assistance. Um, And so literally every neighborhood, uh, you know, for sure on Oahu, but, you know, throughout the state, every single island had uh, households and individuals that were applying. So definitely no common demographic. I would say, if nothing else, this COVID economic disaster has been a really universal and unifying circumstance for people. So this program is just wrapping up, and it was contingent on federal funds from the CARES Act. Going forward, is there any hope that further federal funding can help continue this program? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we know that the need is still there. There are people calling our 211 line every single day asking for rent assistance and mortgage assistance. And at this moment, Congress has approved an additional $200 million to come into our state. And the state and the counties are now working together to figure out how that money is going to be uh, distributed, who will be managing that program, uh, how it's going to be administered, what it'll look like, what the new, the new qualifications are. So there's a lot of activity taking place right now, and we know that it cannot come soon, soon enough. Now, it's interesting you mentioned that 211 helpline. From what I understand, engagement with that line has gone up astronomically. It has. We've experienced a 600% increase uh, year over year, and that increase has sustained throughout from the start of COVID until now. Um, What we're seeing is an an enormous increase in people looking for housing and shelter assistance, people looking for food, people looking for health care. What's interesting with that is prior to COVID, because of the Hawaii Prepaid Health Care Act, we had the lowest rate of uninsured people in the nation. Since our unemployment rate has skyrocketed, the number of people who have lost their health care have as well. So we have people that are, are calling every single day looking to see what kinds of options are available, how to get connected to Medicaid assistance. Um, and the other big topic that we're getting increased for is also government assistance. And so whether that's assistance or help or information on accessing unemployment resources, uh, accessing other government programs, just the need is just enormous. Um, we've actually quintupled our 211 staff, and we are now seven days a week from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. because the numbers of people calling just don't stop. Well, that really goes into my next question. As this program wraps up, but the need continues, what are you doing to communicate to renters in need about possible resources that they can access? Right now, we do have a limited list of programs throughout the state that are um, able to help people access funds for rent and or mortgage assistance. Uh, We're really kind of um, anxiously awaiting the new program um, being launched so that we have more resources kind of in the coffers, so to speak, 
um, for assistance for people. Um, with that said, the eviction moratorium that's coming up right now, although that is preserving some people staying in their homes, we do hear um, that people are unfortunately still being evicted, and it's it's really a difficult thing to manage. And as soon as that eviction moratorium does end, the prediction is we are going to have an enormous influx in those cases coming into the court system, um, not to mention how are we going to help these individuals who don't have a place to live. So the emphasis really now is on helping people to preserve that housing and, and acting as quickly as we can so that we don't exacerbate the problem. From what I understand, it was one of the first orders of the Biden administration to extend that eviction moratorium. Is that not the case? No, that's right. And and again, for us, already in a uh, place with a significant issue with housing affordability and, and a lack of housing in general, um, it's it's something that is critically important that we we know it can't last forever. We know that homeowners can't you know last forever, and and we are hearing as well that people are choosing to sell their homes, which is, you know, again, an issue for people that we're renting. So it's, there's no easy fix. There's no one right answer, but we, it's just something that needs continued focus and, and attention. And again, the individuals, the organizations in the state working together to make sure that these rent programs are accessible and are being administered quickly is, is the way to go in terms of preserving housing for people. That was Lisa Kimura, the Vice President of Community Impact at Aloha United Way. She was talking with the Conversations Harrison Patino about the impact the CARES money has had on Hawaii's struggling renters. That winds it up for us today. Tomorrow, Noe Tanigawa will join us for an Aloha Friday show. Give us some feedback. What did you think about the inauguration this week? Call or talk back line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.